Welcome to Danny Goldberg's Rock and Rolls Hour. This podcast is an expression of our shared connection, and we are dependent on you, our community, for support. Please go to mindpodnetwork.com slash Danny and either click on the donate button or bookmark the Amazon link through which we get a small percentage of all your purchases. Your support will allow Danny to continue his captivating talks and interviews. Hi, this is Danny Goldberg, and this is Rock and Rolls. We call it that because Ram Dass talks about the need to remember that we are souls, not roles. But we also are roles. And I have someone with me today who's a great soul and has played many vivid, transformative roles. Wavy Gravy. You have some gravy in your ear, perhaps a Q-tip, wavy gravy, hippie icon, flower geezer, and tempo of accumulated error. That was him. I'm going to, however, do a more formal introduction of this dude who I idolize. I have not the slightest doubt that he's going to do most of the talking today, but I want to give listeners who don't know him a little bit of his bio. I swear this is the short version. Wavy started his career as Hugh Romney, a poet, avant-garde comedian in the beatnik era of the late 1950s, a friend and protege of Lenny Bruce and Allen Ginsberg. Wavy had the idea to combine poetry readings with folk and jazz in Greenwich Village in the early 60s. He was Bob Dylan's roommate when Dylan wrote A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall. He was a pioneer of the purest aspect of the hippie culture, a protege of Ken Kesey. Wavy and others formed the commune The Hog Farm, which toured America in the 60s, bringing psychedelic notions of peace and love to the heartland, and was famously in charge of security, food, and chilling out people with bad trips at the Woodstock Festival. Festival I went to in a limo and had a hotel room as the reviewer for Billboard. So <laughs> soon thereafter, he was given the name Wavy Gravy by B.B. King. He was deeply involved in the movement to stop the war in Vietnam. I recently went to a Graham Nash show here in New York, and he told the audience that he wrote the song Chicago about the 1968 protest outside the Democratic Convention explicitly at Wavy's suggestion. In 78, Wavy. Ram Dass and others formed the Seva Foundation. Seva is best known for their work restoring eyesight to over 3 million blind people suffering from cataract blindness in places like Tibet, Nepal, Cambodia, and Bangladesh, and also works on health projects in Native American communities throughout the U.S. Seva has been funded in part by a series of benefit concerts the Wave has created over the years, including artists like the Grateful Dead, Jackson Brown, Buffy St. Marie, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Bonnie Raitt, and Steve Earle among others. Steve, whose theme song, who has who, provided Pilgrim, the theme song of this podcast. David Crosby says, when Wavy Gravy calls, you don't say no to the guy. All he wants to do is help people. And 40 years ago, Wavy also started and still runs Camp Winter Rainbow, a circus and performing arts camp for, football, for kids of all ages. He was a Ben & Jerry's ice cream flavor till shortly after Ben & Jerry sold the company. Wavy is the author of two books, The Hog Farm and Friends, Something Good for a Change, Random Notes on Peace Through Living, and he's the subject of a great documentary directed by our mutual friend Michelle Ezrick called Saint Misbehaven, which is available, I know, on iTunes and some other places, and I urge everyone listening to this to watch it. So sorry if that was too long or too formal, but I just 
how to, how to do it. So can you describe, um, in a way, your, your spiritual opinions, your beliefs? Do they fall into any category? Uh, it's kind of like scattergun. I, I like them all pretty much. Um, you know, Jesus, Buddha, Moses, uh, Krishna, you, you name it. Mm. If they can glow and float, I'm there. <laughs> Did you grow up with any religion? Uh, I think my parents were Presbyterians of all things. Uh, I never got too much behind all that. Uh, I think my, <laughs> my, 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 my moment of fame, a couple of things that come to mind in my early beginnings when I was Hugh Nanton Romney, uh, at age five, my mom would put me in the yard because uh, I probably smelled bad and resembled a lot like a miniature uh, Winston Churchill. And uh, we were living in Princeton, New Jersey. And who should walk by our house but Albert freaking Einstein. Now, how old were you? Five, I suspect five. Uh, and he asked my mom, whose jaw was on the sidewalk, if he could spin me around the block. And she just... <laughs> so there I was walking around the block with Albert Einstein. And people to this day, they, they are questioning me. Uh, what did he say? What was he? I was five years old. I remember only a, a shock of white hair that predated Don King by half a century, a twinkle in his eyes, uh, uh, sneakers. I remember sneakers. Uh, and the thing that stood out most is his odor. Smells are something you can remember from a very early age. And he smelled like nothing I have smelled before or since in my life. But someday I'll be walking down the street and I'll say, Hey man, you smell like Albert Einstein. Whoa. And also living in Princeton, uh, when Orson Welles, did uh, his War of the Worlds, I was bundled up and taken into the uh, woods because the Martians were coming to get us. That was Oh, oh your other... parents fell for it? Oh, yes. No, not only they did, the, the, the roads were quite crowded, I understand. Do you actually remember this, or it's just something you've been mm -mm. told about by your folks? I've been told about it. Yeah. But I'm thrilled, of course, and being a, an old Orson head. So you were in the Army for a couple of years. Is the, that right, in the early 50s? This was hilarious. Uh, I uh, was graduating from high school. My parents had divorced uh, when I was like 12. That was pretty rare in those days, yes? The, yes, and they, they remarried and had children. So I was the odd thing out, and I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to get to college. When uh, my high school advisor said, look, they're going to uh, cut off the Korean GI Bill in a week. And they haven't had a Korean War in quite some time. 
it was long over years, two years, I can't remember, mm. but uh, uh, I figured they wouldn't have another war right away. So I zoomed down to the draft board and volunteered for the draft and did, uh, I think, 22 months in the armed forces of the United States before staggered by this little... And where uh, where did you serve? <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I carried on in uh, Fort Dix, uh, New Jersey, essentially. Uh, uh, my stepfather was an aide to Omar Bradley, and he suggested that don't volunteer for anything except if they ask you, you can type or make signs. So we were into a new company, uh, uh, and they needed signs. They desperately needed signs, so I raised my hand, and they sent me home to get my art supplies. And I came in the house, and parents started pulling the shades down. They figured I was A-W-O-L. What could I? <laughs> I said, I've come to get my art supplies. You don't have any art supplies. Yes, but we're going to buy some. Hmm. So I came back and began to... Uh, uh, do all these amazing signs for this company that just came into existence. Through these halls, past the best damn infantrymen in the world, Catalano's Killers. And I would uh, write Catalano in Old English script, which is very impressive. And I began to clean my brushes on my uniform until it was every color but khaki. And I remember walking across the base one day, and this general has his driver pull over what army are you in soldier <laughs> yours sir <laughs> oh and i ended up uh doing a portrait of his niece i did lots of uh, day rooms at fort dix with beetle bailey cartoons and things of this ilk and then i began to put together shows uso shows uh uh and uh variety shows i had one guy that could play nola on his head with mallets you close your eyes you'd think it was milt jackson and then this uh this guy made a pass at me and i punched him and ended up in uh germany in the uh 42nd armored infantry battalion i went they sent me to code school so i learned uh morris code i could say naughty things faster than anybody in the entire uh system and get away with it because they couldn't catch me i was quick at it i can still did it out it did it out out it out it out it out that's a naughty word <laughs> <laughs> and and that was that was an extraordinary time and it came Wait. back and uh, began to uh, go to college at uh, boston university where i started jazz and poetry i had read about uh, jazz and poetry in time magazine that, that they had done jazz and poetry in san francisco now what year was this 54 55 56 so how had howell come out yet six was it's just out he, there was a reading of howell that was one of the the things that had happened and uh and did that speak to you? I said, I can write poems. I know musicians. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> and I got together uh, friends in uh, in the museum school, and we took over this. This is this is kind of cool. We took over this uh, club on Huntington Avenue. It was a pizza joint called the uh, the Pebble in the Rock. The bar was called the Rock, and downstairs was the Pebble in the Rock. Pat's Pebble in the Rock. And the museum school came in, and uh, we got mobiles and black tablecloths and uh, 
I began to uh, write poetry with uh, this other guy who was also a vet named John Adams, J-O-N Adams. And and we even, uh, after doing uh, jazz and poetry, we uh, we took off with our army mustering out pay and hitchhiked to uh, Maine, where we opened a coffee house in Kennebunkport, Maine, before we knew of bushes. There were no mm, bushes. No bushes. To beat. <laughs> They can't be selling just coffee and they are 25 cents a cup. They're selling dope to the teenagers. <laughs> Was there any dope around in those days? That we'd get from the teenagers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was it was a, an extraordinary time. and So you knew by then you were an artist and walking a different path than the oh, absolutely. 50s cliche? And... and uh, Boston University was incredible at that time. They had the finest theater school in the world. And they would bring in the great directors, Daniel Mann, Jose Quintero, people of this ilk. And mm. the whole school could read and a freshman could get a lead, for heaven's sake. Mm. Then uh, the the main uh, Boston University people came in and said, they're not doing their social studies. And we were in this beautiful brick, gargoyle, ivy-covered building on St. Patolph Street off Huntington Avenue. And they wanted to move us all over to the main university. Now, all these teachers, David Pressman, Peter Cass, uh, Sanford Meisner, had been uh, hired because of the McCarthy blackballs. Hmm. So they, they were not able to work right. anywhere else at Boston University. Various... This was the political blacklisting of the 50s yes. where people were accused of being communists and literally exactly. couldn't work for the movie studios or the broadcasting networks. Exactly. But but uh, when uh, the university decided to move us, all the teachers could work. And they said, forget about it. We're out of here. And they took me with them to New York and uh, the Neighborhood Playhouse School of the Theater here in New York City. So where... you, you completed one year at college, too? Two and then to the Neighborhood Playhouse. And uh, Oh, did you get credit for that? I guess oh. <laughs> I was, and I I eventually gravitated to the Gaslight Cafe, which was the ultimate place to read poetry, and I got better and better and better at it as the poems got shorter and shorter and shorter. But so what? And then I was able to talk John Mitchell, who kind of created uh, Greenwich Village in his image of uh, the whitewashed brick walls and the the old uh, ice cream chairs and th that whole vector that I thought the Coen brothers did very good in that uh, that uh, film that they made about yes. the gaslight. Good art direction, but a lot of That's grumpy it. people yeah, I, yeah. In, in, in that movie. It was that a was, sad, depressed group of folkies. It was so not Van Rock, I'll tell you that. Yeah. Hey, I remember when Dylan first came into the gaslight, he was actually wearing Woody Guthrie's underwear. I'm not making this up. And he had a sign on his guitar that said, this machine kills fascists. And he says, hey, hey, can I go on? And I just grabbed the mic. I said, here he is, a legend in his lifetime. What's your name, kid? <laughs> and we ended up sharing this room up over the gaslight. Uh, Hard Rain's Gonna Fall was written on my typewriter. Uh, I had the original draft, I thought, it was eaten by a Beacons, along with Lenny Bruce's couch, which I also had in storage. But I discovered last week that my I was married to one woman for three years and my current wife for 40-odd years, 45 years, something like that. Uh, 
who's counting at this point. Uh, but this this woman, uh, this French woman, <laughs> uh, has allegedly taken the original draft of Hard Rain's Gonna Fall and selling it at South Beast for half a million dollars. That's what I read in the paper just the other day. So, Have you heard about this? No, I know that I know that that's the values are extraordinary of original Dylan Dylan lyrics, but but I didn't know about that particular thing. But you know, in in the Dylan documentary No Direction Home, Ginsburg says how a friend of his played him Hard Rain's Gonna Fall, and he said at that moment he knew that the Bohemian torch of illumination had been passed oh, to the next absolutely. generation. When you saw those lyrics of Hard Rain. Did it ring off bells in your I mind? Said, Bob, Bob, you got it going. It's you got the fresh image. You're gonna, you're gonna keep doing that. Keep <laughs> doing that. That's the, it's not June Moon Spoon anymore, Bob. <laughs> Go for it. And I was, and he did. He went for it. Hook, line, sinker, and uh, we're all. Uh, Basking in, yeah, in the glory of Living in, in the world he helped create. So at what point in your life did you did you just know you were walking a different path? Did you feel that way from the time you were a kid? Or was there a moment where you just felt you were not going to become like a regular businessman or a typical uh, 50s madman American? I think that uh, I first I, I started to get tired of the poetry I, it didn't come as fast and uh it was more interesting for me to talk about the weird stuff that happened to me that afternoon so this guy says to me look skip the poetry talk about your weird stuff and he put me in a suit and started mailing me around the country eventually i'm opening for uh, coltrane or thelonious monk or um Ian and Sylvia, I toured with them. I did Peter, Paul, and Mary's first gig at a place called, uh, the. it was the Cock and Bowl. They changed it into uh, the Bitter End with yeah. Max Ernst's engravings on the wall. It was what a tasty place and, that was. And who were the role models? Was Lord Buckley someone that you were influenced by? Oh, my by? God. I think that Dylan uh, uh, first interested me in Lord Buckley. Uh he, he he did a thing called the Black Cross or something like that, a Lord Buckley piece, and I I thought, where did that come from? I didn't I didn't know who it was. Uh, I uh, came out to California, got my first big gig at the Ash Grove, and because Ed Pearl thought I could get Jack Elliott to the gig, it was me and Lightning Sam Hopkins and Rimland Jack Elliott, mm. and. Uh, I had this house, which Odetta later took over, uh, and <laughs> Jack locked me in the closet once and read to me from the Horse Lover Guide for two and a half hours, which is very dramatic. But, uh, you know, a lot of the beatnik culture had a darkness to it. It was exposing the hypocrisy and kind of the underbelly of, of the fake American dream. But you've always had this huge joy and positivity and yet still had kind of the credibility of, of being a cutting-edge avant-garde thinker. Where did that come from? Just from my, my, my inner 
workings of whatever. It's just who <laughs> voices. you are. Voices. I yeah. heard the voices. <laughs> it was just a positive uh, creativity. Uh, uh, get the steam going and it start to bubble around and wobble around. And I just, it would spew and, and mm. pour out. And uh, 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 I, my first album was The Night the Renaissance Closed. It was for World Pacific. Mm. And uh, it was recorded by Jim Dixon who recorded the birds and the Burrito mm, Brothers mm. and created them out yeah. of whole cloth. Yeah. And um, Jim, after uh, my album, Hugh Romney, Third Stream Humor, <laughs> whatever that meant, mm. was in the bag, uh, he proceeded to play one Lord Buckley piece after another because Jim recorded all of Lord Buckley. That was one of his big things. And my jaw was on the floor that's and and because of my own dynamics uh he a lot of people thought that uh, buckley came first and i was aping him mm. but i had no idea mm. who it was until and it in in many ways it it validated the energy that I was booming up that it, mm. this guy is somehow a part of me mm. and i understand there's a movie now that's coming out. Was going to be a Lord Buckley Lord movie? Buckley movie. That's oh, what I man, heard. that's so I cool. I heard that they premiered it at the Henry Miller Library in Big Sur. And Mrs. Gravy and I pondered uh, going down there and making it. But it's in my geezerhood. I'm not that travelocity. Yeah, yeah, no. The now World Pacific. Ravi Shankar made a lot of records for World Pacific. Did did you? I read somewhere that you worked with him or met him around that time or do i have uh, the dates wrong here's the deal uh, we uh we ended up taking uh, food and medicine to uh pakistan after the big flood we were in england we we gone over uh making a film called uh uh, we were calling Cruising for Burgers. This was an invention of Tom Donahue, who was the mm. guy who created KMPX and all that kind of stuff. And uh, the idea was... KMPX that, was uh, the first underground rock station that played albums and, yes, and, the, yes, and the hippie yes. culture. And this guy, Tom Donahue, was the bridge from the counterculture to broadcasting. Well, we had lived in buses for, for seven years. Uh, uh, Kesey uh, first... He kidnapped me. I was living with Tim Harden and Susan Brussman in L.A., and he kidnapped me and took me to uh, Babs's place in Watsonville. And I was uh, forced to watch film of the original bus ride for like two and a half days. I had to put toothpicks in my eyes. <laughs> and, and it was Were these silent movies? Was there any sound? It was just... Some some not having anything to do with the action. There were tapes, uh, bottomless tapes of prankster stuff. Mm -hmm. and It was some of the most exciting things that, that ever happened to me or result of uh, uh, my association with Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters and the Grateful Dead. I must say that that... That took me to into the the spiritual realm where I started to right. see, oh my God, that stuff in all those uh, those books and uh, it, it's real. It's real stuff, and you could see it and touch it and feel it. And I just wow. And LSD was a key part of this. That was a great key part of yeah. it. Peyote. Uh, mm. My I, I I I say to the kids. Uh, 
you know, watch out when you get on the street, but my father's mush has many rooms. <laughs> you know, peyote was useful, all these things that, that could get me next to God. Everything else mm. was stupid. Mm. Mm. But if you could get in that vector, and there was a line I got from Kesey, uh, when he passed... I wrote a haiku when he passed. They say Kesey's dead, but never trust a prankster, even underground. Mm. And I remember getting up that morning and seeing all these TV uh, uh, trucks outside the house, and I thought somebody in my vector has uh, discooperated. And next thing you know, there were all these cameramen in my bedroom talking about the end of Kesey. And, oh. Uh, uh, I said, well, he gave me my family values. And they were like, what? Nice. <laughs> I said, there's there's a line that runs through everything I've done from the rest of my life, from when I emanated from Ken. Mm. Always put your good where it'll do the most. Mm. That's a line he came up with or he inspired inside you? I think he came up with it. Really? And I, I give him credit every time I use it. Mm. And he deserves the credit for, for that. And it's, it certainly has illuminated my every act. Mm. Uh, is, can, can, it, can it help make it better for, not, for everybody? Mm. I mean, and, and uh, people say, well, you know, you put on these hundreds of benefits and all this stuff. What do you do it for? I said, look, I'm in it for the buzz. Hmm. It gets me stoned. I mean, good and stoned and a high that is not available in the pharmaceutical cabinet. It hmm. just is not. Hmm. And wh when did that activism come in? Was it the Vietnam War that shifted some of your energy into activism? Oh, man. Uh, or did it come before that in the context of the civil rights movement? The, Viet the Vietnam War, uh, uh, civil rights. Yeah, well, I got to ride with the Living Theater uh, to Washington, D.C., uh, where Martin Luther King had his mm -hmm. dream. I was standing. Uh, I got swept up by Peter, Paul, and Mary and their entourage. Mm -hmm. And uh, ended up standing next to Dylan and Joan Baez as Martin Luther King says, I have a dream. And I lean over to Dylan. I said, I hope he's over quick. Mahalia Jackson's on next. <laughs> but after he talked for less than a minute, the air turned into rainbows and light. And I didn't care if he talked for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. I was just golden. Were you able to talk to him personally ever? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, his, he's one of my gurus. I've never met him. I, I, I listened to his speeches all I, the time. I was taken uh, to Coretta's place in Washington, D.C. by Cecil Williams at one point and got a distinct buzz from her. Mm. And that whole scene was, mm. <laughs> mm. you know, I can't believe I'm here doing this. Now, when uh, I was playing at the Village Gate, doing stand-up with, uh, I think it was at Coleman Hawkins, I forget. Anyhow, Bob Dylan comes by and says, hey, you gotta, you got to save the gaslight. It's just becoming jive. And so I went back to the gaslight, and it didn't feel right, but I wanted to do something different. And John Mitchell 
had this other club across the street called the Fat Black Pussycat Cafe. And I put together this this three-man show of me and Tiny Tim and Moondog. Mm. And bam, we did a show. We got the front page of the Village Voice, a rave in the New York Times. And uh, the next day, the sheriff came and padlocked the club <laughs> for back taxes. Mm. And the phone is ringing and ringing and ringing. I said, ooh, it's the Phantom Cabaret. And... Stephen Ben Israel, God rest his soul, uh, took me to 14th Street to meet Julian Beck and Judith Molina of the Living Theater. Right, and the Living Theater, explain for people who don't know what that was, what it was. They were a, a, a troupe of avant-garde uh, thespians who put on amazing stuff. They were doing a piece called The Connection, uh, which later turned out to be a film by Shirley Clark that I understand is going to be re-released. I'm very excited about that. And they put on amazing shows, not only uh, in the United States, but all over the world. And in South America, uh, a bunch of them got arrested, uh, uh, fermenting revolution, wherever they, they did. Uh, Frankenstein, where they created a a monster that was 200 feet tall with all this erector set stuff and they did paradise now where they were all naked in new haven mm -hmm. <laughs> getting captured for that and, and you got arrested for being naked in those days yeah right? yeah and they, they certainly were naked yeah. and uh julian said to me you can do your show here uh, at midnight we've been kicked out of a lot of places and we want to make you welcome and so at midnight we would all gather around and go Bong, bong, searching for 12, but sometimes if we were stoned enough, we'd do 30 or 40, bong. And then Tiny Tim would shuffle out like a descent into the cathedral of the Philco radio with his little ukulele, and all these different old-time artists would come inside him. Mm. He said to me one time, he, he left the stage, he was trembling. I said, Tiny, what's wrong? He said, Oh, Mr. Rudy Valley came inside, and he wouldn't leave. He said, <laughs> he said I lost my Crosby power. <laughs> One time, uh, uh, Neil Cassidy and I kidnapped uh, Tiny Tim from uh, the, the mob, had taken over his contracts and everything, and Mr. Rocco had fallen asleep. So we took him uh, up to the cloisters and driving along Neil's at the wheel. <laughs> oh, Mr. Cassidy, not so fast. <laughs> they started singing Bing Crosby duets and he'd cover his eyes and then he'd look out and sing some more. Oh, it was one of the great, as the sun came up over Riverside Drive, one of the top most spiritual moments of my entire life, let mm. me tell you. And what did Moondog do in the context of this uh, performance? Uh, Moondog uh, would uh, play these triangular drums. Tell people again who, who Moondog was. Moondog, it's good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> he was a blind Viking. Yeah, he would walk. I would, a kid, come into he the city. He would stand up by the Museum of Modern Art in these strange leather clothes right. uh, with a staff. And he'd be standing there day in and day out. And uh, he and he'd sell poems, right? Poems, and he wrote he wrote uh, 
he wrote music. He he allegedly wrote ballets. I, that, right. And he he had a pianist with him sometimes at the Living Theater. And the first writer that I ever encountered when I had Moondog at the Living Theater, I had to have Poland water in his dressing room. I never knew there was such a wow. Uh, there was water that came out of the tap. And then Moondog had to have Poland water. I wonder if it still exists. But after a while, he quit, and I had Sandy Bull take Moondog's place, mm. which was, I think, in many ways a, a, a superior show. Mm. Mm. And we had uh, Sandy playing in front of this enormous tie-dyed tapestry that this uh, 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 magician, uh, artist, uh, drug addict, uh, genius named Bill Heine created. And I remember when uh, my first wife and I uh, moved to L.A. and uh, my dad put the tie-dye in the washing machine. It broke his washing machine. How, why? This, this mystic tie-dye. I don't know there why. Was it was just something weird about the energy? Ve- it was very weird. <laughs> Sandy Bull's of, not still alive, is he? No. Yeah. No, God rest his soul. He was a, a great genius, and I did many, many shows with him. And uh, he was a guitarist. Uh, who banjo. He could play Bach on the banjo. Yeah. He could just do it all. Right. And he's several albums, mm. maybe four or five for Vanguard. Yeah, yeah. Really, really extraordinary. All instrumental, right? <laughs> and you could just. Trip. Oh no, he he never sang a note. Yeah. But, but boy, could he climb all over anything with strings. He was mm. just absolutely phenomenal. I've been fortunate that way in my life that, that uh, have, have connected with so many amazing uh, musicians, not only through the Grateful Dead and, and then uh, through my association with Seva, which is a Sanskrit word that means service to humankind. And once again, looking for a place to take my, put my good where it'll do the most. Tell us about the beginnings of Seva and why you started it and how that came about. This is, well, a bunch of us did. Uh, uh, it was an amazing woman named Nicole Grasset who uh, helped head up the the eradication of smallpox, uh, which is the only disease in the history of the entire world to be eradicated, and talking about setting up a a, a million house calls in India and Southeast Asia. Uh, This guy, D.A. Henderson, and my good friend Larry Brilliant ended up Mm. uh, 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 running the American team for smallpox eradication. And he had uh, with the with that victory he had returned to teach public health at the university of michigan and uh uh nicole grasset who is like uh, mother Teresa in a dior dress except it's a copy hmm. and she said larry we must do something about this smallpox no we've done smallpox excuse me there uh blindness you see 80 percent of the people in the world that are blind don't need to be and can get their sight back with a simple operation and uh and that's the cornea Cataract. It's it's, it's cataracts. Cataract, yeah. Yes. Right. And and uh, we we didn't know it would be cataracts to start with. We did a survey in Nepal, uh, but it it came together. We Larry emptied his Rolodex to help Nicole. That's how Jahanara and I, my wife Jahanara and I, got involved. Uh, 
uh, Ramdas got involved, and and uh, we we got a, a, I think it was a ten thousand dollar grant, which was big money then, mm-hmm. from Steve Jobs of all people, who really? was just starting out Apple. Really, and wow. uh, with with that seed money, we were able to get folks together in Heartlands, Michigan. Now, did Ramdas and Steve Jobs know each other? I don't know because mythology. I think Steve, Larry did. Yeah, the mythology of Steve Jobs is that he was a devotee of Neem Karoli Baba, <laughs> but nobody I know seems to have been there when he was there. I think that Larry might be able Larry to help might, you out yeah, with that. It's okay. He'd be a good person for you to do this show with. Oh, it'd be an honor to do it. That's a good idea. And uh, so we all gathered in Heartlands, Michigan, and Nicole pitched us. Uh, she had because she brought a measles vaccine into Beirut through anti-aircraft uh, fire. She got the Legion of Honor, and uh, uh, the His Majesty's government of Nepal uh, made it possible for us to go into Nepal and do stuff with Nicole. Mm. And she thought, well, we could be in and out of there in five years. Well. It's 40 years later and three and a half million surgeries. And uh, my job in this circle of professors and holy people and musicians and is, is to create uh, music concerts to raise money to do the work. Right. And you've relentlessly done that for well, decades now. Here's the deal. is <laughs> I went to Detroit. <laughs> to get on the airplane, and who's on the plane but the dead? They don't have parachutes. <laughs> <laughs> so I start on the drummers, and they're easy. Jerry is so easy. He's so beautiful. He's always, might as well. Might as well do it. Yep, it might as well. Oh, my God. And so that was the... So they did the first of the benefits? And, and Bill had no idea. Why am I the last to hear about this? It's He's producing the show. He didn't even know it was a benefit. <laughs> But then I'm, um, J- Jerry's on stage playing. I'm I'm backstage with Steve Parrish, Jerry's roadie, and Bill hands me a note, and I open it up. It's a check for ten thousand dollars. I said, "Bill, why are you doing this?" He said, "Because you did not hit on me, my friend." Mm. So Bill helped with many shows, actually, mm. and uh, Jackson Brown. So many shows. Maybe maybe he's. There's a dispute of whether. Uh, David and Graham or Jackson have done more shows. They mm. they argue about it a bit, but I, it's they've helped. They've helped, and and they've helped everybody else get involved. And everybody sees that it, it's not a scam. It's a real thing. Mm. And once you know, my God, that for a, a price of a, a couple movies with some friends, you could cause somebody in the other side of the world to see. And when you're blind in the third world, they talk of you as a mouth without hands. Mm. It's devastating to the family, to the village, to the whole situation. And bam, uh, the surgery occurs the next day. The bandages come off. Suddenly you can see your kid. You can see your wife. You can see your work and become, once again, a creative member of the community. It's a, it's a miracle. Mm. It's a miracle. And to be able to be able to, to have the opportunity to do this that I have, uh, there's, there's, I, I can't imagine anybody more fortunate than I am in, mm. in being able to uh, be involved in, in this process. Mm. So um, 
Just to change the subject, I, I interviewed our mutual friend Paul Krasner recently for this, and uh, he does Rumble not. Rumble foreskin. Yeah, he does not believe in life after death. He is, he's definitely clear about this. Do you have an opinion about this? I mean, obviously, hard to know, but I'm just curious what your notion is about this. You know, I think it, you know, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I, I might as well uh, lay both ends. You yeah, know? yeah. Sure. You know, you, you might as well uh, go for it. A, a lot of people do believe it in, in reincarnation and that kind of stuff. And, you know, might as But once again, if I continue to put my good where I'll do the most, chances are it's. It's going to work out okay one way, one or, way the or the other. other. One way or the other. And uh, I'm prepared to come back as anything. Yeah. Do you remember your dreams? Not very much. Yeah, no, I'm not neither. very good at that. Uh, yeah. Uh, William Butler Yeats had a great line. He said, in dreams begin responsibility. Hmm. And every now and then I have pieces of them. That, you know, <laughs> so in 1980, you had this nobody for president campaign no. and of course that was the year that reagan was elected um well, and, and i i did a fundraiser for alf nader in 2000 uh which i feel a little guilty about in retrospect given the result of that election what what is your feeling about how to maintain some inner purity and still be rational and responsible well, in, in the political climate as we look forward to this 2016. First of all, in 1968, we ran a pig for president. Her name was Pegasus. Right. And she was the first female black and white candidate for that high office. We broke a lot of ground with the pig. And then, uh, then after the pig, uh, we were running a rock for president. We had come back from... Uh, that whole trip through India and what have you, taking food and medical supplies to Pakistan and what have you, and uh, came back and uh, discovered that the the Zippies, which were a spinoff of the Yippies, were running a rock for president. I said, look, we've got a much better rock. You liked our pig, you're going to love the rock. This is from the base of Mount Ararat, where Noah crashed his ark, and I got this Tibetan gentleman to carve a Oh, money, Padme, hmm, the side of the rock. This is the rock we're running for president. And at the various rallies, we ran a role for vice president. Mm. You see, one of my paths to God is humor. Mm. And laughter is so sacred and mm. amazing. And that's uh, the motto of Camp Winter Rainbow mm. is toward the fun. And, and uh, so at different rallies, we would... Uh, uh, pass out different roles because we were running the role for vice president so you could always eat the vice president so we had jelly rolls we had bagels we had all these different uh roles and then i spaced out the rock in a taxi cab in new york city and everybody you left saying, you left the rock in a taxi oh my cab god there was a picture in the village voice have you seen this rock everybody's looking oh for the rock nobody's so and, and it, i'm in deep doo-doo when from up the spinal telegraph came the concept of nobody for president who lowered your taxes nobody nobody's perfect Nobody backs apple pie better than mom. Oh, my God. I started swimming and nobody. We Air, Ronald Reagan had the Air Force One. We called our bus the nobody one because if nobody wins, nobody loses. It's a pair of ducks. And so uh, 
what a thrill it was to uh, go on the campaign trail uh, for nobody and for the speeches. We say, and now nobody will speak. And we had these wind-up clicking plastic teeth, click, 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 click. And all the TV guys would push each other to get better shots of these teeth. And one of the greatest moments of, of my political career uh, was going to uh, Kansas, where the Republicans were having their convention at the Kempner Arena. And first of all, I got to buy out every red rubber clown nose in Kansas and Missouri and put them on all the under the counterculture that were circumnavigating the Republicans. And then John Bryant, who was a reporter for Open City, had to go somewhere far away. And he gave me his uh, press pass to get to the world press booth. And so I put on a three-piece suit, usually reserved for Halloween. And I went in, and uh, I'm starting to type out press releases for nobody. Nobody was president before George Washington. Nobody should have that much power. I'm typing them out and passing them out to the press. And they're digging them. When I'm spotted by this plainclothes Kansas City cop who calls the FBI and the Secret Service, who thrust me into a Lenny Bruce curtain call up against the wall, they start patting me down, and he feels his bulge in my pocket. Is that a gun? He whip it out, and it's the plastic teeth start clicking in his hand. I says, quiet, our leader is speaking. <laughs> and he rolled his eyes. He gave me back the teeth. He said, get out of here. You're too weird to arrest. So I try and keep it that way. Hunter Thompson said it best. When the going gets tough, the weird turn pro. So I, uh, I just recently got my Medicare card. I know you just recently had your 79th birthday has has getting older changed any of your perspective on on these issues about uh what's animated your life in terms of uh well i'm a little less animated <laughs> <laughs> just, uh, but but i've learned to uh, uh surrender to other folks to help get me around mm. uh it it was hard to start with to to not wanting to do it all i used to do uh i used to run the entire camp yeah I, I do everything and now i just do the morning reading and the evening program and that's that's about all i can do mm. but heck uh i can't imagine ever stopping my people say when are you going to retire i say my tires are fine mm. <laughs> i'm not going anywhere as long as uh, i can fog a mirror i'm in the movie so in the in the actual movie Saint Misbehaving about you, your friend Larry Brilliant says of the late nineteen sixties, quote, There was a feeling in the air that the world could be a better place and it could be made better by the efforts of young people. And um and a little later you say there was a period after Woodstock when it was really cool to be a hippie. And I'm thinking Woodstock was forty six years ago. The same distance from now that Woodstock was from nineteen twenty three when there were no talkies. And how do you explain, I know you have grandkids, I have kids in their 20s. What, 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 what is it from, from, the, from that era that can be shared with young people uh, without, without talking down to them, but, but in a way that could inspire them to, to, to keep this energy going after we're somewhere else? I think, they, you know, they ought to test drive uh, putting their goodwill to do the most and mm. see where that takes them. Mm. And I think that uh, it'll take them right straight to God. Mm. I can't think of a better way of ending than that. Thank you so much. 
It's a great honor for me to do this with you, man. Thank you. Kissing builds up your mouth. Cool. Thanks for listening to Danny Goldberg's Rock and Rolls Hour. We appreciate your support and hope you will continue that support by going to mindpodnetwork.com slash Danny.